I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, Just a heads up this week, um, I'm taping this away from my normal recording studio. So the sound on this is not going to be great. My my sincere apologies. I did want to do podcast this week. So I had to make a decision between like not the best sound versus not doing it. And so... um, so I opted to do it, but but I understand it's it's not the greatest quality. So I appreciate anybody who uh, who hangs in on uh, on that. Hopefully, you know the uh, the Apple reviews uh, will not crush me. Uh, and if you want to leave a five star review and a nice note, this would be a good week to do it because the sound quality won't be um, you know won't be as uh, as high quality as usual. But I, I think it will be um, it will be doable. The guest for this podcast, Chad Finn, sports media writer general columnist for the Boston Globe, Austin Karp, the Sports Business Journal Managing Editor slash Digital. We had a great conversation, great roundtable. We discussed MLB viewership at the All-Star Game, uh, baseball's decision to sign deals with so many different partners and why that's so unfan-friendly, home run derby versus All-Star Game, and why younger people have been morphing to the home run derby, where we all stand in a post-Tiger Woods world and where interest in golf will be vis-a-vis viewership. Will Live Golf get a deal in 2023? We all agree that it will at this point. Austin gives us a pretty deep dive into his uh, USFL viewership stories that he's been doing, sort of an examination there. Talk about ESPN hiking the price of ESPN Plus. That is coming up soon. And finish up with um, the ESPN's Derek Jeter documentary. Chad Finn says that the Nomar Garcia Para deserved a documentary far more than Derek Jeter. So hopefully uh, you'll enjoy this roundtable. I did. And uh, without further ado, Chad Finn of the Boston Globe, Austin Carp, Sports Business Journal. Okay, as I said at the top, you know, apologies to the listeners for what will not be as high quality sound as we normally do. That is on me, Richard Deich, and I'm on Patrick Antonetti, my tremendous producer. Um, I'm away from my traditional place that I'm recording did want to get something out for everybody. And so the downside is that the, the sound quality will not be as great this week. The upside, hopefully, is that the conversation will be interesting. You all can be the judge of that. As I mentioned, Chad Finn joins us, as he often does, sports media writer, general columnist of the Boston Globe, sports business journal, managing editor, slash digital, Austin Karp. And uh, gentlemen... Welcome back, and my apologies for the for the crappy sound. You sound marvelous, Richard. You sound great to me. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. The, the audience will be the judges, huh? as they always are. <laughs> All right, Austin. I'm going to start with you, and then Chad, please follow. We are taping this during the week of the uh, All Star Game for Major League Baseball, and you know they're in beautiful Southern California. Going to probably get some great uh, imagery there with uh, the All Stars now. Hollywood Walk of Fame, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good time to sort of think about where is baseball right now? 
Austin. And before we get into um, some, where some of these national contracts are, and I know I have thoughts on them. I'm sure you and Chad have thoughts on them. Can you, from a viewership perspective, um, give us a sense of where we are in 2022 nationally between the alphabet soup of, uh, of national carriers that MLB has? Well, yes, starting at that top level, I think Fox Sports, you know, talking about on the broadcasting cable side, I think they're down around 15% headed into the All-Star break. And it's going to be, I think, one of their, one of their least-watched seasons on record. Um, ESPN with that Sunday night baseball package exclusively down a little bit from the same point last year, but kind of up compared to where it was in 2019. But I think a lot of that has to do with the inclusion of out of home, the inclusion of some of these K-Rod telecasts, even though they're getting only around 200,000 viewers or so. So like on the, you know, this is the first year of that new media deal and that's where the big, you know, hitters lie. Uh, TBS is kind of an apples and oranges sort of comparison, especially during the regular season because they were for years on Sunday afternoons, and this is the first year they're kind of switching to Tuesday nights. So it kind of remains to be seen whether, you know, that's going to pay off for them. They had a lot of competition from other sports earlier on on those primetime windows. But, I mean, the big issue is still where those RSN ratings lie. And, you know, in the 25 to 54 demo, they're up around 4% compared to last year. But I'm not sure that tells a, you know, a true story of what's going on because a lot of people just cannot watch their RSN still in the local markets. Uh, a better story for baseball is, you know, MLB.tv, which is really up almost like 10%. And that could be the future for them. Like, how can they really turn viewers to that sort of out-of-market package where you can watch, you know, those RSNs and actually be able to watch your team? Chad, you're in an RSN market. So yeah. let's uh, – and you're, on, you're, on, you, you're covering a team that, um, that's in playoff contention. And so that has to be, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know you laugh, but you know, they're in, uh, you know, as, as someone living in Toronto, the Red Sox are in playoff contention. Trust me on this. Um, so how has it been for Nesson this year? Like, are you for, you know, it's not an issue as Austin says in the, in the Boston, New England market to get uh, the games. Cause you can get them. You have to pay for them, but is viewership up, down, flat? Where did, where do Red Sox stand right now? Cause it'll give us a little bit of a perspective of the RSN. Yeah, last I heard it was they were up 2%, but, uh, you know, we'll usually get those numbers right around now with the All-Star break uh, for sort of the mid-season report on that. But uh, it's been an interesting year with them because they launched, um, you know, a separate streaming app that uh, I was looking at it on uh, Roku the other day because it has five, it has reviews on there and it had almost a thousand reviews and it had two out of five stars. So <laughs> I figure I probably need to get this thing pretty soon for the last couple months of the season. I watch, I watch them a different way, um, but just to kind of get a feel for how that's going and why people are so frustrated with it as a $30 a month uh, price point, which might be part of it. But um, I think the numbers there are relatively stable year over year uh, with them. But uh, the thing I hear, and I'm sure you hear it too, but particularly being in you know, a, a regional market here, uh, people get really frustrated about where to find the games. Uh, if there's a Peacock game or, uh, you know, uh, uh, really Apple TV anywhere where it feels like just based on my inbox that uh, older people have a hard time figuring out where this stuff is sometimes and younger people can't afford it. They can't afford to pay for all these different uh, streaming services and uh, for, you know, just a couple of games a year, 
if they're not really interested in any of the other content. So um, dividing up the pie really doesn't work for any fans. It works for Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball in the short term, but I think it leaves uh, everybody frustrated that uh, just wants to be able to watch their, their team in a stable place. All right, Austin, I'm gonna, I, I want to follow on chat and then I want to go to you because this is really the sort of the core issue of MLB that I wanted to hit on um, for this podcast. Baseball's executives have clearly made, and Rob Manfred has clearly made a decision that baseball is going to extend its media rights to as many entities as they can get a significant check. They may make the argument that if we have Apple and Amazon and Peacock as part of our um, you know, business partners, this is a long-term investment too because the, the future obviously is direct to consumer. But as Chad said, man, there's, in my opinion, there's no more unfan-friendly sport than Major League Baseball. ESPN, Fox Sports, Fox Sports 1, Turner, Peacock, Amazon, Apple, MLB Network, the RSNs. It, it, it is almost inconceivable, Austin, for an average fan to watch every single game uh, unless they're just willing to just spend a crazy amount of money. Um, you guys at SBD cover this stuff very heavily on the business side. Like it, it's obviously a good investment for major league baseball because it makes them wealthier, but I don't, I have, I question the strategy. I don't know. Maybe nothing matters and everything to watch baseball anyway, but man, this, this really feels to me like such an anti-consumer kind of strategy. How do you see it? I mean, yeah, they kind of got, that was the whole rub, I guess, from these media deals when the ESPN saying, you know, we're not really interested in those non-exclusive midweek games. And it's such a unique, I mean, I guess it's not super unique because you do have baseball, basketball, and hockey that kind of have the same issue. But the tonnage of games with baseball obviously makes it more unique than even, you know, the basketball and NHL side. But, I mean, especially for a market like Chad's talking about with Boston, a popular market, like, you know, whether you're the Cubs, the Yankees, the Cardinals, the teams that a Peacock or a YouTube or Apple TV are going to want, yeah, it's going to be frustrating for fans of those teams because you're going to have to figure out where your popular team is playing on a given week. I'm an Orioles fan right now, right now, we're not really going to be attractive to a lot of those teams, to a lot of those platforms, unless we're playing like the Red Sox or the Yankees, but like China. Yeah. In this day and age, like getting people to pay for all of those platforms, especially younger consumers is a big ask. And that's, it's a big ask in the media landscape overall, as you see, you know, these price increases with places like ESPN plus now it, it's asking a lot and, you know, makes you really, you know, want the days of the bundle back. You know, and it's interesting, Chad, because like baseball has a pretty good story to tell if they could get their story out to as many places as possible. They have really exciting, um, interesting young players. The, um, you know, they're short, they're, I think heading in the right direction of shortening the game a little bit. So it's going to be a little bit more digestible. Uh, you know, I think long-term offensively, like the strategy of um, universal DH is going to be good for the game just because it, um, it's going to create more runs, but man, it, it, um, it, uh, you know, Austin hits on a lot of stuff, you know, the, the, um, the other thing too, and you know, and again, like um, this is an issue with hockey too. The Orioles are playing incredible baseball, 
right? The Mariners have played incredible. I don't think the Mariners have lost, it feels like, in the last five years. Um, but you're never really going to see those teams nationally compared to the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs, et cetera. And the problem the networks always say is, well, you know, we got to make money on this. And the Yankees and Red Sox are guaranteed ratings for us. The, you know, the Orioles and the Mariners are not. The same thing in the NHL. We got to show the Blackhawks. We got to show the Flyers, even if like the Oilers have the best player in hockey and Connor McDavid. Um, I'm not saying I know what the solution is, but it does feel like baseball can do better to me in maybe expanding its brand a little bit. But again, maybe then I get back to my own sort of thesis to start this. You try to expand the brand, but you're, you're expanding on 27 different platforms. So how can you really expand it? Well, yeah. I mean, you, the thing is, uh, for all the appeal of the marquee franchises or um, you know, a great uh, out of nowhere story like the Orioles are becoming, or just a star power Major League Baseball has right now, where you have uh, is di- a pretty diverse group of young uh, superstar players, great charisma. Um, you know, allowed to show their personalities a lot more within the game than uh, they used to. Um, baseball is still a regional sport. Um, it, it the the people you're ticking off are the ones who. Uh, ride the you know the ebbs and flows of the season of the 162 games of the Red Sox or Yankees or Orioles or whoever their team is and expect to be able to watch that every night or every weekend and when they go to sit down and turn on the Yes Network or uh, Nesson or whatever they're paying separate money for to have and the game isn't on and they have no idea where the game is we had an example of that this weekend where this MLB Network and um which is blacked out here and uh, was on another network uh, I'm drawing a blank on, but people couldn't find the Red Sox Yankees game. And uh, that drives people crazy. And uh, that is the, the heart of baseball is people's rooting interests in their individual teams rather than their appeal in the whole broad sport. And that's where uh, this may backfire a little bit on major league baseball. They're going to get billions of dollars in, in the short run, and uh, they'll have no regrets about any of this. But, um, you know, in the longer term, they're, they're, they're ticking off their fans, and this is an older demo sport as it is. So um, there's going to be some backlash to come down the road because of, of uh, you know, how they've divided all of this up to get every last buck and, and left uh, the regional fan in the lurch with their team uh, way too often, especially on weekends. One more thing for you, Austin, on RSNs, and then, then we'll go to the, uh, the properties of the home run during the All-Star game. Um, Mike Mulvihill, who we all know, who's uh, Fox Sports uh, you know, vice president of uh, research and strategy, uh, you know, the patron saint of, of, of publicly putting out there that baseball is in a much stronger position than, than maybe the, sort of the public lets on. He, he tweeted on uh, July 5th that the greatest cognitive dissonance in the business is that live sports are holding the bundle together. And he says they are, but at the same time, the RSNs, which are number one in prime, basically every major market are doomed. How can that be true? So I flip it back to you, Austin. Um, you know, if you, if you based on what Mulva Hill's saying, and yeah, he's always going to spin for the Fox sports side, but he, his data is, is good. And his data is, is what it is. Um, RSNs and markets all over the country. I mean, I know certainly in the New York market, yes is rolling when it comes to viewership and and Yankees ratings. So there is, you know, even as we're all, even as Chad and I are sort of bemoaning 
um, baseball's issues here. There still remains, obviously, a big bunch of people in the RFNs where you can get the games that are really interested in these games. I mean, yeah, yeah. First off, Yes Network is rolling this season. They're getting more viewers just than the New York market than an MLS games on get, gets on ABC across the entire country a lot of time. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a problem. I mean, we've kind of written ad nauseum about it, paying attention to how Sinclair is going to make this a viable business. And like you said, I'm sure Mike is kind of happy to be out of that side of, of the business on the regional sports net side. And, you know, but giving teams control of that versus having, a, having the control at the national side, like, how do you do that? How do you make that work? How do you make that a viable national product for your, for your sport when there's such regional control? And are carriers going to pay what they did? And they have to solve the streaming issue, which is baseball was kind of behind on. So they have a lot of problems that they need to work on. And they're starting to. And I like that baseball at the league level is staying involved with Sinclair and trying to find some positive solutions. But I, I don't know what that is yet. If I knew, I would definitely not be here. I'd be you know, selling that, that solution to you know, Major League Baseball and Sinclair. But uh, I'm, I'm, I, know, I know a lot of smart people are working on it. Let me start. Let me let me stay with you, Austin. Um, is will this year be the year that the home run derby outdraws the All Star game? I don't think so. I mean, it's <laughs> it could be close. Uh, it's, it could be close. It was only around a million or so of viewers last year. Or, you know, eight point two million for the All Star game versus seven point one for the home run derby. I like the home run derby better now. I think it is exactly what you know. Chad was talking about it allows you to see the players and their personalities. It's fun. It's the closest thing that Major League Baseball has to Savannah Banana Bowl. And, you know, <laughs> the All-Star game is, I think, on, I think it's going to see another, I think it's going to see a record low this year, personally. Interesting. And it is just, what, what does it mean? Like, wh what, is, what is the draw there? Um, especially in the night before, you're seeing something that is a little more fun, a little more open, and you're getting access to those players that you wanted to see anyways. So is it going to happen? I don't know if this is the year. But it's coming, and that gap is closing fast. Chad, um, as Austin points out, like, I, let me put me down that the Home Run Derby will not beat the All-Star Game this year, although um, I will be fascinated by the gap because we saw the gap obviously really shrink last year. This is, I've, this, this is either from um, Austin or from John Lewis, our buddy of Sports Media Watch, like, um, as I was doing my notes. I usually am very good with attrib specific attribution, but I didn't mark it here. So it's one of you two guys, and thank you to both of you. The, um, while the All-Star game is um, behind the NFL and the NBA when it comes to the 18-34 to and 18-49 to demos, interestingly enough, last year, it lost those demos head-to-head -head against the home run derby. Um, and particularly at 18-34, to it got crushed. So that's interesting, um, and this sort of picks up with what Austin was saying, Chad, in that at least for younger viewers, I shouldn't say at least, for younger viewers, they have made it very clear that they enjoy and are more interested in the Home Run Derby than the All-Star Game. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, the, the Home Run Derby for um, you know, people, you know, my demographic, you know, I'm on the back end of uh, 25 to 54 here getting there. Um, still tend to think of it as a relatively new thing, <laughs> and it's not. I mean, there, there's a generation now that's grown up with it um, and uh, uh, associates it uh, with the All-Star Game and maybe even as a bigger event. And, you know, as we've seen, the, the, the All-Star Game uh, 
you know, trend downward in terms of viewership. I think it was down a little bit. Uh, it was 19, I think, the lowest rated All-Star game. And then this one was the second lowest rated this past one. So we see it, uh, you know, kind of trending the wrong way. The All-Star games kept its appeal, even with format changes. And, uh, you know, with these, uh, you know, with these new stars, with a guy like Pete Alonzo who's won a couple and really embraces the challenge of it and turns it into kind of this, uh, this WWE approach to it, um, it holds a ton of appeal and uh, it uh, sort of fits uh, fits what sports fans are looking for these days. Do you think, Austin, some of it is um, – it's not necessarily the speed of the entire event because the Home Run Derby is a couple hours. Like, it's a slog. It, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's long. It, 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 you know what it is? It, it, it sort of feels like that um, it's almost I, – I think maybe um, incorrect here – but the home run derby is so much feels so much like a video game that um, a good point. that younger people can play yeah. on their you know whatever their gaming um, stations that they have that like really duplicates like very very closely to me like the 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 video game feel there there's all this stuff and then there's breaks and then there's all this stuff and then there's breaks well where the all star game is sort of you know one continuous um regular baseball game even with obviously these um these stars the other thing is and this is not the all-star games for mlb's uh all-star games fall it was always once like the novelty of interleague play hit us and now has become very normalized i think the all-star game was always going to start trending down like the the brilliance of that game when it was at its crazy i mean i looked at the this the other day in 1975, 33 million people watched the All Star Game. I think about that. That that is insane. 33 million people watching an All Star Game, and today, you know, if that thing gets uh, if that thing gets got double digits, I think Fox would uh, you know have a so Eric Shanks would have a parade in in uh, in Southern California right now. So I think some of it is just the fact that like the novelty of seeing all these players. Uh, that once upon a time you never saw before. You see these guys every single night on either highlights or on a um, or on a game, and so I think just inevitably that that game continue will continue to lose meaning because I just don't think it's. I, I mean, I hate to say because I, I I like baseball. It's just the specialness of that game is not very special anymore. That, that's how. I, I think. No, I think interleague has something to do with it. I think you know. This is the 20th year of MLB.tv. So if you do subscribe yep. to that and you get that package and you want to go in and watch an Angels-Mariners game to watch Mike Trout, you've been able to do that now for 20 years. And if you look at, you know, where the All-Star game is kind of ranked, it was 20 years ago that, I mean, the number that it drew 20 years ago, that's what it would need to do now to make like the top 100 telecasts of the year. And it'd be at the bottom. Before we get off this topic, Chad, is there, uh, is there anything else you want to hit? When's the last time it was at Fenway, by the way? Uh, it's, uh, 99. Yeah. It was uh, just the anniversary the other day. It, uh, Pedro Martinez, Ted Williams, uh, all the steroid guys hitting home runs on. <laughs> oh, by the way, let me correct myself. So innocent. Then I, I said, 1975, 33 million. It was 28 million. It was the next year. The 1976 all-star game did 36 million yep, on yep. ABC. Nuts. That, that's yeah. in, this- it's like inconceivable to think of like, those numbers today crazy. yeah it's just because of the options like you said i mean we, we see whatever we want now I, I grew up on the you know game of the week with you know scully and garagiola and yeah. oh my god you know the dodgers are playing the cardinals i never see these 
see these teams. And uh, by the way, that's I, Mark. That's that game. That third. That seventy six offense. That's Mark Fidrich talking to the ball. So you might have gotten a couple extra million people. Yeah, I would say he, he was the you know like the most fascinating guy at the uh, at the time and a New England guy, right? Or New Hampshire guy? He was very yeah, yeah, Massachusetts. Yep. Yeah. All right, Austin. I, I'm going to stop this podcast right now. I'm going to do a column on the fact that the All Star Game has lost all these viewers from 1976, 36 million because of the social justice messaging in Major League. Of Facebook. course, yeah. That's, was also that's why this. That's it, yeah. right? That nobody what, is wants. That the, the, is this tied to the 10 unvaxxed royals that can get into your hometown? You're going to work that in? No one wants politics, and that's why the game has gone from 36 million <laughs> to 8 million. My column, uh, please subscribe to all my columns uh, on my culture war. Uh, Thank you. Let's move on to golf. The um, Open Championships end. Uh, I'm not a big golf guy. I don't know if you two guys are. I think maybe I'll. Nope. Um, the, uh, so it's a pretty thrilling finish. And was it Cameron Smith who won? Am I right about yeah. that? Okay, yeah. all right. So Cameron Smith wins the uh, the Open Championships. The big story the first two days, though, is Tiger Woods, who plays the first two rounds, doesn't make the cut, um, really, like, limping to the finish. And, you know, people now wonder, like, is this the last time we're going to see Tiger Woods at a Open Championship? And then the questions start, Austin, sort of to get broader, like, how many more times are we going to see Tiger playing in majors or how many more times are we going to see Tigers playing in regular, uh, you know, tour, um, tour stops. And then as we continue to extend this, I start to think, because this is where it interests me, what does the post Tiger Woods landscape look like as far as golf viewership? Because for so long, like the conversation was like, all right, What's it going to be after Tiger? You know, thank God CBS and NBC still have Tiger. Well, we're getting close now to the post-Tiger Woods era. Where do you see the sport viewership-wise in the post-Tiger Woods era? First off, I think we had this conversation a decade ago. What does the post-Tiger <laughs> era look like? Right. Like when, when you know, with the, with the mailbox incident. But uh, yeah, I mean, now it's just a straight matter of th- this is his age and this is where he is. Uh, could he come back and pull a Phil Mickelson at 50 and win a major? Of course. Um, but the days of him, you know, competing uh, at the World Golf Championships and some other, you know, random PGA Tour events, that, that's just not going to happen. So, I mean, what's going to drive the needle and what is the needle these days? It's not going to be at what Tiger level, you know, numbers were for playing at Torrey Pines. But they're going to still see, you know, some upticks. If you have a Rory, if you have Jordan Spieth up there, I mean, they, they were getting decent, really big upticks for events like the John Deere Classic and seeing good numbers. That's also right now driven by this international intrigue with live golf like all right what's going on with golf maybe i need to tune in and kind of see what's going on there and i, I think that's driving some of the numbers but uh you know is cam smith uh you know a george custer lookalike gonna drive these numbers <laughs> I, I don't i don't think so this guy and this plus this guy's probably headed to live golf from what i understand and that just begs the question what is lives golf media future so there's a lot to be written there we're gonna get to what live golf live golf's media future is but we'll uh, we'll move to chad to to hit this one all right chad austin makes a makes the point like for you know we probably if i had this podcast 12 years ago we would have been having this conversation but now um now tiger's chronological age forces the conversation in addition to obviously all his yeah, injuries 46 and yeah in addition to everything else so where do you where do you where do you stand on a post tiger woods future in golf obviously like people are going to watch golf there's millions and millions of fans people will certainly watch the majors the question is like could they 
could they ever reach the, the Tiger Woods viewership heights again? Or like, is the next 25 years just the new normal because you're never getting this phenomenon again? Yeah. I mean, one of the most amazing things about Tiger is that he was the heavy favorite, you know, at his peak. And yet probably the mass, vast majority of viewers were rooting for him, or at least it felt that way. Well, you get this, uh, it's not often you get the heavy favorite uh, who also is uh you know, is the person that people want to see win and, and uh, um, you know, they're pulling for because that charisma and the talent is just so otherworldly. And I mean, what's the best case scenario for how you follow Tiger? We've been looking for this for years, waiting for uh, one or two guys to really emerge as these, uh, you know, bright stars in the landscape that are in, uh, comp- you know, uh, in the hunt almost every week. And, um, you know, play with a, a style and a flair that draw people to TV. And, you know, you get a Spieth or, a, you know, Roy McElroy for a little while or, um, you know, a few names down the list. But, you know, you look up in the Masters and it's, you know, Scotty Scheffler. I mean, uh, great yes. golfer, not a lot of uh, charisma there, you know. Nope. Feels like you'd be Jim Nance's favorite golfer. Um, <laughs> shot, shot on Nance from the... Yeah, I know. He's probably listening. So we'll... Uh, you know, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll deal with that one later, but, uh, it, it just, you know, it, you, you can't find another tiger and I don't know how you cook, uh, how you even get within 80% of what he was in terms of appeal, the money he brought in, uh, the viewers he brought in. It just, that golfer doesn't exist yet that we know of. I agree. Good news. They're in year one of a media deal. So though, you know, locked up there. Got time. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, like Michael Jordan, like LeBron, like, you know, fill in your once in a lifetime kind of athlete. There is not going to be another Tiger Woods. And I'm with you guys. Again, the sport, the, the sport will continue to draw interest. It's, you know, it has the advantage of people play it. So they not only watch, I think, for the competition, but many golfers watch, I think, to learn uh, almost in an instructional manner to sort of see how these guys and women do what they do. So you might be able to pick up tips. So that's, that's, that always gives you a little bit of an extra share. Also, I want to get to you. I was asked this in a recent mailbag at The Athletic. Do I think Live Golf will get a media deal? And I said rather cynically that the reality of the world that we live in, when the NBA has a partnership with China, whose human rights record is, you know, horrific, when Fox Sports or Fox goes to Russia to um, broadcast the World Cup, Russia's obviously human rights uh, uh, record, horrific. And we, everybody certainly uh, that I know are women's basketball fans are thinking about Brittany Griner. NBC has done Olympics in China, in Sochi. And you're right. So, like, again, they have done business with places that have horrific human rights. It's not that any, I think, right-minded or decent human being likes this. But when I answer the question, I tried to be a realist. I don't think if I think a lot of these sports entities will deal with the fallout of bad optics if they think ultimately that fallout recedes and they can get a big sports rights deal at a decent price. And my thought, and again, I had this talk with Chad, uh, I think a couple months ago, and I think we disagreed. So I'll start with you, Austin. It'll be interesting to see if Chad has shifted a little bit. I believe that Live Golf will be on some media outlet next year. It's obviously not going to be one that has association with the PGA, but it could be like a BN. It could be a, uh, 
um, I don't know. I'm just making this up, you know, discovery turn or whatever, whoever doesn't have a, a connection with the PGA. I think they'll get it at an incredibly cheap price. And I think they'll just gamble that the people who are disgusted by this will eventually sort of recede in their disgust and they'll have this property with major significant golfers. Am I, will I be happy about being right? No. But if you were going to ask me my prediction, that would be my prediction in 2023. How do you see it? I, I agree. I think somebody will pick it up. I think there'll be enough interest for a short-term deal. I think you're absolutely right. The PGA Tour connections automatically rule out an NBC, a CBS, an ESPN. I don't – Fox, I mean, do they still treat golf like it's kryptonite? They did not have a good run with the USGA. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't, I don't – just for that not, – not because I think Fox somehow is uh, – uh, you know, is they wanted mother, no mother, part mother, of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that Fox's mother Teresa. I just don't think they want golf. Yeah, I don't. That I agree. So it's like you said. You're talking about entities that are looking for content, particularly to fill hours of streaming platforms. And yeah, maybe it is a you know a, a Turner Discovery. Discovery has a lot of ties already with European sports, and they might fit in that sort of portfolio that they have, especially as they want to launch you know a broader streaming service. Could could this help that? Maybe. What about you, Chad? How do you see it these days? Yeah, I agree. I don't remember disagreeing, but I probably did. But, you know, we've, <laughs> we've had that exodus of, uh, you know, relatively big names that to, uh, will, will probably continue to some degree, uh, especially if it gets easier to go without any backlash, um, whether it's Cam Smith or, or other guys that's, uh, you know, having success on the tour right now. But kind of feels inevitable at this point. Uh, people are going to want to follow the guys they know. And, and uh, you know, if the PGA keeps losing uh, prominent names and uh, guys, uh, eventually guys higher up on the leaderboard go to, uh, it, it's, uh, it's going to be a certainty that it ends up on TV somewhere. Yeah, the real question. Yeah. Go ahead, Allison. I was going to say NBC is not going to be happy about their Ryder Cup numbers going forward if there's you no, know, nobody no. to play on the Ryder Cup. Well, I was just going to say that, it, you know, we're into the we're getting closer to the point where like the majors like have a significant decision at hand that if, uh, you know, again, I, I realize that golf is not my thing. But if let's say eventually 20 of the top 50 players in the world are on the live tour, somebody I'm sure who's a golf nut would tell me right away that well, right now it's 11 or right now it's 12. So let me just use 20, 20 of the top 50 players, Austin. If they're on the live tour, I don't know how the majors can prohibit them from playing. I just think at a certain point, economics will factor in and they're not going to want to ban these guys, even if they disagree with them heading to the tour. Yeah, I think they'll end up allowing these players to play. Uh, this year was a you know, kind of scattershot and who was allowing and who wasn't allowing and but, you know, it's, it's not just golf. You've seen it with tennis. And you, you've seen places like Wimbledon, you know, keep, try and keep Russian players out and then have a Russian player win. But uh, it's, it's – and this is with the similar sort of thing. You had the RNA kind of banning uh, – not players, but you, they had a tiff there with Greg Norman. And then what do you see? A guy who's likely headed to live kind of take the trophy. And it's not a – I don't know if it's worst-case scenario, but it was probably not on their list of things they would like to have seen happen. But, uh, yeah, long-term, I, I think they're going to allow him in. And, you know, and what does that mean for the prestige of PGA Tour and PGA Tour events in the long term? It's a great question. And it's sort of the money question. All right. We're going to move to a couple more topics here. Austin, I'm going to go to you. You did a phenomenal job, in my opinion, of chronicling the USFL 
viewership and putting it into context. I wonder if you could, in a you know a shorter span here, uh, do that for my viewers. Um, what the USFL basically did viewership-wise, and in your expert analysis, how did that do um, against whatever the um, expectations might have been at the beginning? You know, I'll try to be like that priest from Spaceballs, and all right, here's the short, short version of events so we can make that happen. But uh, they did incredibly strong. This is spring football, okay? In the first year of the third league, is kind of try to make this work. And you're talking about a regular season with around 750,000 viewers. That's incredibly strong, making something from nothing. And more importantly for Fox, they own this thing, and they tried to keep costs down, and it kept them from having to make an enormous bid on media rights for something like MLS for something like the Premier League, which have been up recently. So instead, they created their own and they got better numbers. I mean, th- and that's just the regular season. Then you look at their championship game, you're talking around, oh, what did it get, like a 1.5 million viewers in there? And that was bigger than like the MLS Cup last season. It was bigger than what the best Premier League game has drawn on U.S. airways. It's bigger than the Monaco Grand Prix, bigger than the Winter Classic on TNT this year. So it's up there with some properties that kind of make you go, huh? I can't believe the USFL championship was getting this strong of a number. Austin, what, uh, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you, Austin. I should say, uh, Chad, um, how did you see it? You know, you're not, you're not, you're, you're not somebody who obviously, um, um, was diving into the USFL viewership on a week to week basis as Austin did, but he really, I think makes a pretty compelling argument that like, Hey, like first year self-funded league, they did pretty good in terms of viewership. again, I think Chad and I are in agreement with this. I'm sure we've talked about this in previous podcasts. I do not believe this league will exist four or five years from now. I just, it's nothing against the league. I'm actually rooting for myself to be wrong. I just don't think spring football has a long-term shelf in the United States and it's been proven, but you think it just folds. I don't know. I, I, I'm, you know, I haven't sort of thought about that for, but Chad, like, here's the point. Like Austin makes a really good argument here. Like these are pretty good numbers for a first year startup league that I'm not sure anybody expected would necessarily put those numbers up. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, anecdotally, I mean, I've been asked about it, like on radio appearances, you know, up, up here in new England and stuff. And I'm, I'm always kind of taken aback by that one, because there's no team, you know, they, they put the breakers in new Orleans and uh, is that what they are? New Orleans instead of Boston where they originated with the original uh, USFL. So there's no interest here uh, that I thought, but uh, the, the people who, um, I, I think consider the NFL their favorite sport, and that's a lot of people uh, in professional football their favorite sport, and and probably also pay uh, relatively deep interest to college football, and so they know kind of the fringe players, the guys who go in the sixth and seventh round of the draft, and and uh, uh, don't make that you know don't make the last cut in the NFL. They uh, have some knowledge about these guys in the USFL, and they're happy to get that fix. Uh, of um, just having some football when, when uh, you know, there are no NFL games. The NFL's never actually had a season now, as we know, but uh, when there are no actual games, it's, it's a good little fix. And as long as um, expectations are reasonable and they don't start trying to compete and signing uh, top college players or guys who are draft picks, and there's, they're not going to do that. There's no indication they don't have the money for it. Um, 
I think they can hang around for a little while. It's interesting to look at the Fox Sports website, by the way. It's now USFL is now the fifth thing on their task task bar. So it's uh, it's moved back a little <laughs> bit behind behind the behind MLB because they got to push the All Star game now. Girl, say this, Richard. Like, you know, the XFL numbers when it was around in twenty twenty before COVID shut it down. These were they were even stronger, like way stronger than these numbers. So there is that appetite for spring football. But what does it mean when they're going head to head? That I do not see. Can there be two leagues? <laughs> no, I, I don't see two spring football leagues. I see some sort of merger down the line. I don't know what that looks like, but the XFL has incredible brand equity. And I, I think that's the name that survives long term. Yeah. By the way, Chad, I, I, I'm, again, I'm not saying that um, ESPN doesn't do it. I'm sure the athletic would like push like some big special report that it does to the front. Obviously, if the Boston Globe has a story of significance that it worked on. It's going to push to the front, but there is very, there were very few things that were just more amusing <laughs> to me, to me this year on a, like a sports nerdy thing to see Fox sports's website, just like making the USFL, like the, one of the top two stories um, like of the day. It reminded me when they sort of, uh, I think this was under uh, uh, the uh, Jamie Horowitz uh, uh, video initiative, uh, the, pivot what, to video. Well, well, yeah, they pivot to video when like whatever Skip Bayless or like Colin Coward said that day, like that was the lead story yeah. on, on uh, you know, man walks on the moon would be second to Colin Coward <laughs> saying like, you know, uh, uh, Alex Rodriguez should be traded or something like that. Last couple of things here before I let you guys get out of here. I appreciate your time. Austin, your colleague, John Orand reported that ESPN is hiking the price of ESPN plus by 43% starting in August, uh, per Oran's reporting. As of August 23rd, the streaming service will cost $9.99 per month, 99.99 per year. All these companies do this to try to pretend it's not 100 bucks. A sharp increase from what it's now, $6.99 per month and $69.99 per year. Well, I would love to really, I mean, the real story, Austin, I'd love to talk about is, you know, who's leaking this to Oran? Why is sports business... Uh, Journal getting this as a uh, trial balloon to see what's out there. That said, I don't, you know, <laughs> and I joke about that. This is pretty big. Like, I don't know. It's, um, it, it's big news to me. And maybe it'll sort of grow as like consumers get their bill because 22.3 million subs as of Q2 for ESPN Plus. So they, to me, Austin, like sort of quietly, and no disrespect to John Oran, but, you know, quietly within his news break, obviously. This is like they're sort of telling you, like, all right, like where this is where our new price point's going to be, and if you want this direct to consumer service, which one day probably will be the flagship, you got to pay up more now. Big, I don't know. It feels like a big story to me. How do you see it? It is, and especially in the grand, the broader, you know, media landscape. And you know, I know John had that hush hush off the record meeting at the German Pavilion at Epcot with Mickey and Donald, so maybe it came out of there. <laughs> Was, no, Burke, but, was, was Burke Magnus and Josh Krulowitz there? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, okay. I don't know if they were on uh, the ride together at the Norwegian Pavilion, but I can make Epcot jokes all day. But nice. um, it's a, it, maybe it's a, a play to get people to really get part of that broader Disney bundle. You know, increase yeah. the ESPN and just be like, all right, if I have ESPN Plus and it's costing this much and they're not increasing the cost of the overall Disney bundle to get Hulu and to get Disney Plus, then it looks like a better proposition to kind of up it a little bit and just get all three. And then maybe, you know, how, when's the last time I used Netflix? Maybe I cancel Netflix and use Disney and Hulu instead. 
So there's a lot of strategy going on there at a higher level, but this just gets back. That's to only whole, $4 yeah, more. It's only $4 more. You look at that, you're like, ah, you know, why not just up it by four bucks and I can cancel something that doesn't give me as much value anymore. Do I really need Peacock? All right. Maybe I cancel Peacock and I have Disney during these months. And, you know, there are so many, so many, so many packages now that, yeah, you're going to see some of those smaller ones just get cut. And that's when you start, you're going to start hearing more about media consolidation. Who does maybe Comcast go out and buy? Because they have a lot of cash on hand too. Yep. Let me just say this as a big star Wars nerd, I, I will, Disney plus is phenomenal. And oh, I would, I, and I would pay far more than they're charging me now. Definitely the one we watch most in this house. Yeah, they probably even more than Netflix. Yeah, again, point. that's not. The, I'm sure, like for others, it might be Netflix, and then for some others, it could be Peacock or whatever. But, uh, but I, I, I think Disney Plus not only is an excellent interface. It's just, I mean, I, I mean, again, like the Mandalorian <laughs> and uh, the Obi Wan series alone. Like to me, yeah, you, I would have paid. The, whatever the entertainment you got. proposition is incredible. But then you look at a property like Peacock, and I can't even tell you the original series that might be on there. All I know is the sports that has gone there. <laughs> yeah, well, as a wrestling guy, I, I gotta have Peacock. But but yes, I know what you're saying. I, it's it's a different it's a different proposition. All right, Austin, uh, not Austin. I'm sorry, Chad. I'm losing my mind here. Here's what I want to finish uh, with you, Chad. You're and Austin. You're welcome to follow. But I'm giving. I'm give, boy, this is like a layup for Chad. Please, as the Boston Globe's sports media writer. Let me know what you think of the Derek Jeter uh, 50 part documentary on his life. Well, that's my running joke. And Omar should get an eight part documentary if Jeter gets seven because <laughs> he was better. But uh, that's my that's my Twitter shtick. It's, anyway. it's a good joke, though. I like that. I mean, yeah, he's opened up more than he has before. Um, you know, a little bit of talk about the A-Rod stuff, uh, some of the, the being in the PD era, um, that kind of thing. But uh it's still not, um, you know, it's kind of a, there's a, there's a hagiography if it's you telling your own story more or less. Um, it feels like it could have aired on the Yes Network without many changes. Um, but, you know, everybody's trying to have their, uh, their own version of uh, The Last Dance. And uh, what we're finding out is just uh, there's really not anybody who's as appealing and uh, um, still a little bit, I don't know if mysterious is the right word, but, you know, Jordan, Michael Jordan has that edge to him that makes him endlessly fascinating. And Jeter just doesn't have that. Um, you know, he's been, uh, he's been a private person and he's opened that up a little bit more, but, uh, it's, uh, still not the, the total open book. How did the Brady, how did the Brady, uh, series Chad play in new England where it would have been, you would figure, uh, if it was going to get any kind of significant, uh, attention, yeah. it would be there. It was really anticlimactic, actually, because he retired before the last episode aired. And I then he came back. And uh, you remember, they we all thought that we were getting the 10, I think, episodes of, uh, you know, bang, 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 bang. And then there was that big gap in between, which made you um, suspicious that something might be going on, that he was going to walk away or uh, something else that he wanted to reveal in that last episode. But by the time it finally aired, people were tired of hearing about him. Um, and and uh, it uh, didn't really get any buzz at all here when when episode ten finally aired. There was, uh, you know, we had people doing write ups of them. You know, again, you'd get this screener uh, before it aired and and do a write up to run immediately, and it get a little bit of traffic. But that cr- traffic uh, gradually decreased as the series went on. Austin, you're in uh, Charlotte, so and you're you're a Georgia Tech guy. So I know you'd watch a Bobby Crimmins uh, ten part uh, doc. But does the Jeter 
documentary, like I should say as someone who lives in, in the South, like does that documentary have any appeal for you? How, how do you look at it as somebody who's a little more disconnected from Chad, who lives in Boston and me, who's a lifelong New Yorker? You know, I'll, I'll talk about it in the sense of I am a documentary nut and I will check this out just like I do have still, you know, man in the arena kind of queued up. And I am kind of curious because it does have some of the elements that last dance had in that, you know, it's not a guy who really was getting in front of a camera, a documentary style and talking a lot. Tom does this, I feel like a lot and he was still playing. And there was, you know, there was no letting the fine wine breathe at the retirement. It's like, you know, he's still active. Do I need this documentary right now? I think Jeter has been away from the game just long enough so that, all right, I kind of want to hear what he has to reflect on. I want to hear from him. I want to, because you didn't hear a lot about, you know, this side of him, I think, while he was playing. And, you know, I, I want to see how it was produced. I know there was a lot of criticism about the Michael Jordan doc for being like, you know, completely controlled by him and his, and his, you know, his party. And I know there's a lot of those elements here with Jeter, but uh, I, I want to see it before I make any sort of judgment call. I'm wondering what Jeter, Jeter's angle is with this um, because he's, he left the Marlins. He never really revealed anything about himself. He, uh, the beat writers liked him because he would, he was always available and friendly and never said anything. I mean, that, but, but the friendliness and the availability accessibility got him, uh, um, you know, put him in people's good graces, but he never revealed anything about himself. So, you know, he's on Twitter now he's, uh, uh, or at least a PR person as Derek Jeter is on Twitter now. And I wonder what his ultimate game here is. Is he pushing like a more Players' Tribune stuff? Does he have a business interest here? Or Because uh, obviously he's thought it through. He better have the stories that Michael had. You better have those Michael Jordan, I'm going to beat the hell out of Clyde Drexler type of story, you know, to make this sticky. Because here we are two years later. And it's going to be years that we're kind of talking about the last dance and like, oh, do you remember that scene? Do you remember when they talked about this or, you know, things that came out of the last dance? Can it have that sort of staying cultural impact power? I think so. A couple of things here. I think as Jeter never talked, if he reveals anything or if the doc reveals anything that is, um, you know, falls under the banner of sort of sexy, like uh, he says something about uh, playing against somebody like the Alex Rodriguez stuff obviously falls under that. Um, Derek Jeter had a lot of high profile relationships in the nineties. Right. So if there's any headline about Mariah, Mariah Carey or, um, Minka Kelly or someone like that, that'll get attention. I don't know how far Derek Jeter's going in, in that. The one thing, Chad, you sort of said something and it sort of cued me off here. I think Jeter does it because of, I think at a certain point, even guys who didn't really talk to them to, or didn't really say much during their career, don't you think there's a desire or a, a lust for relevance still? Isn't that what we all want? And Jeter now doesn't play anymore. He's no longer an executive with the Marlins. And this series gives him relevance. Like the biggest sports brand in the country is committing whatever it is, 10 episodes to his life. And even if you um, are not as big a egoist, let's say, as Alex Rodriguez – at a certain level, Derek Jeter is an egoist because you have to be an egoist to me to be a Hall of Fame athlete. Oh, sure. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, uh, he had a massive ego. Um, just uh, it didn't reveal itself in the ways that it did for A-Rod, which is probably um, one reason by why A-Rod's a more compelling figure. But um, yeah, I don't know. He, I mean, it feels like he's trying to uh, portray is a hard word but you know he's doing a lot of stuff with his family you know he'll do instagram videos or tiktok where he's 
driving around. His wife, um, Hannah Davis, the, the former SI swimsuit model, uh, is there with him and their kids. And, you know, he's Mr. Inept Dad, you know, joking around and things like that. And it is a side of him he's never revealed, but uh, I feel like there's more to it than he just misses the spotlight. I feel like, because uh, Jeter's always been so calculating that there's uh, some sort of the business angle here or marketing angle that hasn't been fully revealed yet. There could be. Yeah. I don't know. It's, you know, it's, it could be that it could be 40 something year old guy trying to find himself uh, a little bit of a midlife crisis kind of thing. I, I don't know. Um, all right. Last one, Austin, then I'm letting both of you guys go. Um, if you, as someone who's in this part of the country, you had to guess today, does the ACC remain intact because of the grant and rights deal or do you think in the next year or two, one of these ACC schools decides to bolt, they're willing to pay whatever the onerous fines are from bolting in exchange for being part of a, a gigantic brand new uh, mega revenue conference? You know, first, I will give credit to John Swafford, the old ACC commissioner, for at least having the vision to have that grant. Oh, yeah. Arts, Agreed. Because it's keep, that's the only thing that's kind of kept it together for now. And yeah, I think we'll get through this season, and then around this time next year, you know, could I see Clemson and Florida State bolting for an SEC? Like, yeah, yeah, I do. And then what does that mean for other schools down the line, like Chapel Hill and Duke and, you know, my own school, Georgia Tech? Does it, do we fit with more of the portfolio and academics of a Big Ten? So I think there's still movement to be had, and I don't think I, – I do see exodus from the ACC long term. It's interesting. Uh, I know Chad Boston College is uh, the one thing I will say again. I have read my my colleagues at the Athletic have done an incredible job on this. It seems like they're writing about expansion almost hourly. The school that to me is really the most interesting one when it comes to the Big Ten's North Carolina, big public institution, Ooh, yeah, big public institution, great academics, and in a part of the country that it feels like the Big Ten would really love. To be in again, I don't know if like North Carolina would go by itself. I don't even know if I don't even think the Big Ten is going to expand anymore this year. But um, but that's how I look at it. But Chad, in your neck of the woods, listen, BC is not the same football power it once was back in the Flutie Glen Glen Foley uh, football power yeah, era. But it's it's a great <laughs> it's a great school with a great reputation and a historically good basketball school. Um, they had Matt Ryan. I think they get up to number oh, two. Oh yeah, Matt right? Ryan. Maybe even number one for a week. What do you yeah. think? You think? I mean. Uh, Austin makes an interesting observation that he thinks the ACC eventually um, will lose some of these schools and, you know, we'll, we'll change in the next couple of years. Yeah. Well, I'm still getting used to BC being in that. I agree. <laughs> it's it's big, been like it's a, 15 years. It's a big East school to me forever. I'm with you. Yeah. I, you know, if this all results in just the old big East basketball conference reassembling, I'm fine with that. It, it's all worked out in the end, but uh, uh, I, I think there's a better chance of, uh, BC ending up in America East than oh, <laughs> anything like that ever happened. Yeah, I know. I, I no one. I mean, I'll, I'll do a podcast on it with people who cover the sport, but man, no one ever talks about the impact of all this stuff on a sport that I've covered for a long, long time and really like women's basketball. Very few people have talked about like how it's going to impact like baseball or track. It's just like some of the some of these schools uh, are powers in these. Uh, other sports, but you know, I get it. Football pays the bills, but it's just frustrating. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that USC Minnesota baseball game in late February. <laughs> I hope it's yeah, it's an, at Minnesota. At, yeah, <laughs> I can promise you that will not be at Minnesota. All right, is there anything else you guys want to add before I let you out? Of? You gave me an hour, uh, 
of your time. The sound quality isn't great. Uh, I can't thank you to enough. Anything else you, you want to get out of, uh, any takes you want to get out before we're out of here? I would like to reiterate that Nomar is better and does deserve an ESPN documentary, but I feel like I'm probably on an Island there. Mm, yeah. He's not going to get a doc. Although quite frankly, <laughs> you can make the argument. His life is a hundred times more interesting. He married me a half. Yeah. For a lot, you know, you know like uh, that, that, like that relationship to me is a lot more interesting. No offense to miss, uh, Hannah Davis, but that, I mean, he, your former colleague. <laughs> yeah. And we never met by the way. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I mean, you know, no more. And, and Mia Hamm, that's one of the great sports power couples of the day. And Mia Hamm, I find endlessly fascinating because she, she did not let people in. Um, oh, neither did he right into her he orbit. She was an incredibly great player who was very, very private. So to me, that's guarding. a more interesting figure than someone, you know, who we, sort of know everything about uh, uh he richard he was absolutely miserable just awful guy to deal with at the end of his red Sox career and he's in the media now and that, it's always does, does that ever offend you when that happens well, with certain guys? i think here's the thing <laughs> like when i was younger a lot of the stuff like really ticked me off and i think i just became either more cynical or more virilis it's probably honestly why like I, i'm probably I would be too revelatory. I'll be probably stopping writing about this sooner than later. Cause I do think, you know, there's a value in having someone who's like, you know, uh, you know, 25 and like full of piss and vinegar on certain stuff. But like, I, yeah, I don't like it, Chad. I think it's such a hypocritical, like kind of take to like sort of not be professional with the media or to be miserable with media members. And then to obviously take a job once you leave, I think I've just become so cynical that I know it happens all the time. I know television executives do not give a shit about this. You resigned to it. Yeah. And like TV yeah. executives don't care about it. Cause a lot of the TV executives have no journalism background. They're, they're, they're there to make money and they're there to sell ads. Um, so I'm resigned to it, but no, like I would love like for someone who like understood and respected like what the job of a sports journalist or sports reporter is and, and at least had a professional relationship, even when someone was writing or saying something negative with you, um, and then to move to the media. But I think the reality of the day is that you are going to get a lot of people who were, you know, who as athletes had a, did not have a great relationship with, with their local press corps and, and continue to go into the profession. That said, there's also a lot of media members who are assholes. So it's not, it's not, just, a, it's not just a one-way street here. And, That's next and if I was LeBron or Durant, <laughs> if I was Kevin Durant or LeBron James, and I, like I've been shit on like for like 15, 17 years from places like, you know, that have made a shitload of money on me and the Jamie Horowitzization of all this stuff, like I, you got a reason sometimes to be pissed. I don't know. Austin, you want to be the voice of reason here? I've been known as a lot of things, never the voice of reason. All right. Chad Finn. Sports media writer, general sports columnist for the Boston Globe, making the case, too, that no more Garcia Power was a better player than Derek Jeter. Sports business journal, managing editor slash digital Austin Carp. Check out his work. Uh, and, um, and again, I, I, there's a lot of people, obviously, who read sports business journal, listen to this podcast, so you know about Austin. If you don't, um, and you don't subscribe to SBJ, just check out his Twitter feed, because a lot of times he will really provide you with some really interesting viewership information that should just give you a better sense of sort of like why some of these organizations do what they do and again i've said this a million times but 
Austin Carp and John Lewis of Sports Media Watch and Anthony Krupe of uh, of Sportico. Um, these are people who traffic in the stuff on a day to day basis. So, you know, when it comes to viewership, as a general, Bill Shea, my colleague, the Athletics, doing this now. When it comes to viewership, I, just my take is I trust the people who write about it on a day to day basis, not necessarily people who parachute in, you know, once every couple months to sort of sell the soap on what they want to sell. All right, Chad and Austin, thank you uh, for doing this. And uh, I'll have you on again down the road when the uh, sound quality is much better. Thanks, Rich. Thank you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Austin and Chad for uh, doing this. Um, Again, I appreciate them doing this very much when the the sound quality is a little bit uh, different than they're used to. Um, Thanks to Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work putting this podcast together. Thank you, obviously, for everybody at Cadence 13. Want to head to the archives? There should be things uh, that you'll enjoy. Tom Rinaldi came not too long ago for a uh, uh, long conversation on his new uh, audio podcast series, Wesley, which is about Lyman Wesley Bostock Jr. Zach Kiefer on his uh, podcast series on Andrew Luck. Uh, Monica McNutt came uh, a couple weeks ago, talked about uh, her career in Ascension, did an emergency podcast with Andy Staples on USC and UCLA, heading to the Big Ten. TJ Quinn discussing his reporting on Britton Briner. And ESPN chairman Jimmy Pataro, 63 minute conversation with him. I appreciate all the nice words uh, for this podcast, and I appreciate very much that uh, you've continued to listen after all these years. It means a lot. I appreciate that. Again, thanks to Patrick for all his hard work this week. Not easy to uh, to do when uh, when the sound quality is a little bit off. And I thank you for listening. We'll see you soon in the Sports Media Podcast. <laughs>